values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. Uh, we are going to have Senate President Warren Peterson join us this morning in studio, running a bit behind, so we're going to postpone it one segment of the show, but Mr. Peterson should be here uh, very soon. We're going to have a great conversation, I hope, at least about the legislative session, the vision of the Republican leadership working with a Democrat governor, and how Arizona may look different over the next couple of years with a new governor in office. So all that's coming up here in a few moments. As soon as Mr. Peterson gets here, we'll be jumping on it. So I want to shift things around a little bit. One of the things I was going to talk about later in the hour, let's talk about it now, the border issues. This is interesting to me. Um, all of the different pressures that cause things to happen. We know that uh, the, the the demand for eggs um, made it more expensive. You put on top of that bird flu and that you know running rampant across the country drove down supply while demand went up, which means eggs have gone through the roof. That's just part of the pressures that cause things to happen. This is interesting, and it's kind of an overlooked thing that's happening at the border until now. And this is from uh, some of the um, border farmers. Farmers at the southern border are warning the country's food security is in jeopardy after gaps in the U.S.-Mexico border wall have allowed migrants to trespass on farmland and contaminating crops. Here is a quote. The largest humanitarian disaster we've had in this country is the headline. From November through March, Yuma supplies 90% of the nation's supplied a supply of leafy vegetables, according to the Department of Agriculture. The city generates about 9 billion servings of leafy vegetables per year. However, area farmers say the large gaps in the border wall threaten food production. <clears throat> So again, demonizing people is the wrong thing to do. This is not about demonizing anyone. This is about the realities of what people in southern Arizona and you know in Texas. But when you look at how much of the food supply comes out of Yuma um, and the way things are being handled is a disaster. This is a national security issue, a food security issue. We already have seen the price of necessities, of the staples, go through the roof. We know that the war between Russia and Ukraine has driven up wheat costs because of how much of the wheat around the world comes around from that area. Well, you're looking at the leafy vegetables in this country coming out of Yuma, and we have seen what's happening there. Now, it isn't about demonizing anyone. I'm not trying to demonize anyone. I'm trying to point out the issues and the problems that are not being faced, nor are they being solved by the people we've put in place to fix these problems. We've got legislators that should be making up legislation, that should be proposing legislation. Now, kudos to uh, Arizona senators um, that have made the effort in uh, in Senator Sinema and Senator Kelly in leading a congressional delegation to the border, and it was a bipartisan delegation to look at, actually tripartisan if you look at the fact that Senator Sinema is an independent. And um, they looked at this and they wanted to have some real conversations with people involved, whether it was nonprofit organizations or the law enforcement agencies. But when you look at the complexity and the immense problems just here in Arizona, the people of Yuma, not a wealthy community, but you're looking at how critical they are to the nation's food supply in this time of year, and you've got farmers that are saying, we are in trouble. Our crops are being contaminated. It's not demonizing people. It's not saying these are horrible, evil people. It is saying the reality is what is happening 
has got unintended consequences that are going to be dire for the American people. We're already paying high prices for the food we eat. Now we've got these staples, these necessities, these leafy vegetables that are going to be destroyed because of contaminated crops if we don't get a handle on this. This is a fair thing to be pointing out. This is something we all should be talking about. It's something we all should be taking a very long, hard look at and saying we have a right or we should have a right as people in this society to have sustainable food. We should have the farmers should be able to grow their crops, harvest their crops and make a living providing the food the American people need to eat. When there's a crisis like this, we should respond to it. Every time there seems to be a crisis in this country of any other kind, the government jumps in and wants to solve the problem. When you look at what happened here in Arizona, and I'm not making fun, I'm just pointing out some things. Here in Arizona, we know people text and drive, and there have been some horrible accidents caused by somebody that was a distracted driver because they were texting and driving. So what happened across the board, everywhere in the state, we had to have specific legislation that outlawed texting and driving. We already had distracted driving laws. It was already against the law. I don't care if you're eating a sandwich or if you are texting, if you're distracted and you cause a crash – then that's a distractive drive. You get a ticket for that. You can go to jail if you cause a crash. I've told this story before. I was driving north on the I-17 when I had my business. Back when I lived in the Northwest Valley, it was rush hour traffic, bumper-to-bumper traffic, north on the 17, somewhere like between Thomas and Indian School, I believe it was. And I was in the far left lane. We were inching along. And in the middle lane of traffic, there was this little tiny truck, like a little Toyota or even a old uh, a Isuzu truck that was just – you know, putting along and there was something sticking out of the driver's window. And as we pulled up next to this vehicle, I swear to you, this is a true story. The guy driving the Toyota was steering his car with his knees and playing the guitar. It was the neck of his guitar that was hanging out the window. Do we need a specific law that you can't play a musical instrument while operating a vehicle? So my point is the government jumps in whenever it sees a crisis that seems to be um, the public catches the public's attention and they've got to run in and do something about it. Here we have existing laws on the books and this system does need to be fixed. I am sympathetic with all sides of this. I am someone that would be a champion for immigration reform. I am somebody that would stand shoulder to shoulder with what some of the activists are saying about having a better immigration system in this country. There's no doubt about it. You've got my vote. But we have to have border security. We have to have food security. We have to have national security. We've talked about the people on the terror watch list that have been caught, but we don't know how many haven't. We How many gotaways is what they call that. How many how many gotaways are there? How many people that have avoided and evaded detection or capture at the border? Now we're talking about our food supply. This to me is infuriating because it's something that's being ignored. And every one of us should be holding both parties accountable. All right, we are going to have a conversation with the Senate president in the Arizona State Legislature, Warren Peterson. He joins us coming up here in just a couple of moments. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app.
All right, joining me in studio is Senate President Warren Peterson. Uh, let's make sure your mic is on. Um, there you go. Welcome to the show. It's it's nice to have you in studio. Thanks for having me, Mike. Um, we were just talking before we went on the air about some of the things that are happening, and I want to start with what you were telling me about inflation in Arizona. Can you explain? Because most people would think that there's not much that can be done at the state level about inflation. It's a national national problem. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, recently we uh, rolled out our, our inflation plan to deal with inflation in Arizona. There actually are several you know low hanging fruit issues that we can handle here in Arizona inflation is mainly a federal problem um, it doesn't take a ro- rocket scientist to realize that uh, the massive amount of spending has watered down everybody's money supply but there are at least four things that we can do here in Arizona at a statewide level to reduce inflation first of all we need to eliminate the rental tax we're one of only five states that charges the rental tax. It's bad tax policy. When you make your mortgage payment, Mike, you don't make a tax payment to pay your mortgage. Renters shouldn't have to pay tax when they make it. And we're talking about renters. We're usually talking about the people who are struggling the most. And rental tax is 50 bucks to 200 bucks per person on average. That can be per tenant. That can be the difference between another take of gas. That could be the difference between them putting food on the table. So we need to get rid of the rental tax. Number two, the food tax. We should eliminate the food tax. Um, everybody eats food. This is a broad-based tax, so, so it's fair because everybody gets to benefit from it. But who it mainly benefits is the poor. I can afford food tax, but you know what? The poor, again, this is what whether it's 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, this is the difference between them putting gas in their car. Um, occupational licenses. We can we've got a lot of one-time money. We got about 2 billion dollars in one-time money in our budget. We could use that to suspend occupational licenses for a couple years, eliminate those. I'm talking about barbers, cosmetologists, massage therapists. You know, these are a lot of these people are single moms. They're just trying to get by. And you could be talking about $100 to $500 a year. But again, these are little things that help people make ends meet. Um, And then finally, um, I've worked in the housing industry for 22 years. So um, when we used to have a situation like this, where you had this high demand for housing, we could take dirt, uh, a house from dirt to house in six months. Mm -hmm. You know how long that process takes now? No. It's four years. Really? Okay, to do the same thing that we used to do. So we can't respond to the market, and it's government is the problem. Government is the problem. It's just, it's well-intentioned stuff. And if you hear each new requirement the government has put out, you think, oh yeah, that's a good idea. But the problem is when you add it all up together, it ends up taking now four years. You can't respond to the market. So you have people like us who will just say, well, we're going to stay on the sidelines because the very last thing I want to do is buy high and sell low. We all know that's a bad business proposition. And so that just exacerbates the problem. You even have less supply. I mean, this is very simple. It's economics 101. It's supply and demand. We don't have enough supply. Arizona was, you know, famous for our low pricing. I mean, we're well known for our low pricing. And that was because we could used to respond very quickly, put out a ton of homes very quickly. And so I'm currently working with the League of Cities and Towns on an administrative approval process. This won't take us back to six months, but this could take us back to a year. It'll allow the housing industry to respond. 
down quicker, and so we can increase the supply, and that will lower prices. With the regulation you've talked about that it adds to the time frame, what does it do to the expense as well? Does it add to the expense? Oh, of course it does. I mean, ab- uh, 100%. N- not only are there more permits and more processes that you all have to pay for, that all, of course, has to be absorbed in the cost, but probably the biggest thing is, as you know, Mike, time is money. Sure. And if I buy property and pay 100000 an acre or 300000 an acre, you take the interest rate and you expand that interest rate over seven years, and then once you start putting the infrastructure into it, now that's an even higher balance that you're paying interest on, and so at the end of the day, it's the customer who pays for that. Joining us is Senate President Warren Peterson. Let's talk a little bit about the possibility of those items that you're talking about. They seem to contradict a little bit with the plans that the governor has laid out in her budget wishes. How do you work with a a governor that's a Democrat? You've only got a one-seat majority in the Senate. How do you keep your caucus united, and how do you stand up for some of these things you believe in with the governor? Is there room for negotiation with her? Well, there should be because, um, first of all, she did stand up and say – I mean, a lot of it in principle she agreed on. She said she wanted to cut red tape in the housing market. So I think as far as my administrative approval plan and based on the fact that the League of Cities and Towns supports it, I think there's a good chance that that one can get through. You know, it's it's a full moon when the League of Cities and Towns supports me. There was a, a time when my I had a sister on the Queen Creek Town Council. I had my brother was on the Gilbert Town Council. We were all serving. I was in the legislature. And uh, they, they both messaged me at about the same time. They said, hey, we just received the uh, League of Cities and uh, Towns uh, support and opposition list. And I think they said seven of the eight bills on the opposition list are yours. <laughs> so, so, you know, for us to agree on this, I think it's something I can agree with Hobbs on. Um, you know, I think we can also agree on you know, she mentioned going after foreign countries taking our water. You know, I've heard that Saudis are pumping water. It's basically none of it staying here. There's no benefit here. It's all being exported out of the out of the state. And people don't understand how water intensive growing alfalfa is. It is a yeah. very water intensive crop. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. So I think I think that's an area that we agree on. Uh, we should agree on the budget. And this may be a newsflash to people and. And shame on the legislatures in the past for not getting this right. But it's the legislature that introduces the budget. Governors can introduce budgets. They don't have that ability or authority. But we've allowed them with their – since they have one voice, we've allowed them to get ahead of the legislature. But, you know, we did something very unique this year, Mike, and I thought it showed good unity on part of both of our caucuses. We actually put our budget out before the governor put her budget out, which is what we should be doing. And um, and it was – a budget that had bipartisan support in the past. Um, It makes Arizona run well, and so it should be supported and it should be accepted by her. You know, Mike, the reason why Arizona has been uh, so successful and so prosperous, we have hundreds of people moving here every day, Mm -hmm. and we have consistently been one of the fastest growing states. And whether people realize it or not, they're moving here because they want to raise their family here. They're moving here because they want to have a job here. They're moving here because it's a fun place to be or get 
educated. What they're really saying, whether they know this or not, is I'm moving there because they have good public policy. This good public policy didn't happen by accident. We have been making this happen for over a decade now since I've been down there. The last thing that we want to do is go woke and destroy Arizona. You look at California right now, they have a $22 billion deficit. There's absolutely no reason for that when you have Texas, who's about the same size, has a $33 billion uh, surplus. And we have a surplus, too. And the only difference, really, is good public policy. All right. We have got the Senate president joining us for a few more minutes. We're going to have him in here for one more segment. We're going to talk about education, the uh, aggregate expenditure limit, and school choice. All that's coming up. Stick around. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, thanks for being here in studio as the Senate President Warren Peterson. Um, let's talk about education. Let's start with the aggregate expenditure limit. We know that that has to be it has to get a two thirds majority in the House and the Senate. Um, I spoke with the Speaker of the House. He was assured me that that was going to get done. Are you as confident about that in the Senate? Um, I think it can get done. Um, I, it's important to understand the aggregate expenditure limit. I don't know how much time he spent with your listeners, but the history of it is very important for the voters to understand. A lot of people don't know what it is. So the aggregate expenditure limit was put in by the voters back in 1980. And what they said was, look, this is the max that we need to spend on education. And as I've talked to people, the question, I mean, whenever we're looking at anything, whatever we're doing the goal is not to spend the most money for the worst quality okay in the private sector you never just focus on spending the most money in fact you and i mike as consumers what do we do we always try to get the best product for the lowest price right okay and arizona has some of the best educational um has some of the best schools and if you look at the uh top u.s uh uh, rankings, um, U.S. News rankings, we're in the top 10 in a lot of our schools. So we have some of the best schools, some of the best opportunities here in, in Arizona. So in other words, we have a good product here that we can replicate. So the question for 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 education funding should not be uh, what is the max we can spend? It should be what is the appropriate amount to spend on a child to give my child a good education? Now, I have heard that the number is correct currently about 12,000 bucks a student. That is a good number to give your child a good education. We're at about thir- we're almost 14,000 per student. When when Governor Ducey came in, he said, "I am going to dramatically increase K-12 spending." And he did. I mean, every year I was down there with Governor Ducey, he dramatically increased K-12 spending. In fact, we have doubled it since I was elected. And you know what that has done, Mike? It has caused us to hit this aggregate right. expenditure limit that was put in place by the voters. This is the limit that voters said back in 1980. Once you hit this amount, that is the max that you, you know, that is the max amount of money that should be spent on education unless, unless the edu- the legislature comes together and says, hey, we need a two-thirds vote. Now, we have been, it doesn't matter what Republicans do as far as K-12 spending. I mean, it was crazy. The Democrats proposed a 4% teacher raise. So Governor Deuce said, 
okay, I'm going to do a 20% teacher raise. So we did a 20% teacher raise. Guess what the media was saying about us? We're not funding education. I mean, it doesn't matter what Republicans do. We're not funding education. This is proof right here that we have funded education. We've hit the aggregate expenditure limit, folks. That should be part of the narrative. That should be part of the story that we have increased K-12 funding so much, we've actually hit the cap. And so I know as far as my caucus goes, they just want to make sure we're getting a good product. We're getting the best you know, bang for our buck. They all care about education. We all have kids. We all have grandkids in education. So, yeah, we have several that have already said, I'm going to vote for the aggregate expenditure limit. But we've also had some members of my caucus that said, you know what? I think this is wasteful. This is a wasteful area or there should be an education reform here. And I would like to vote for the aggregate expenditure. I'd like to vote to lift it this year. Um, by the way, Mike, it's only been hit like six, seven times since it's been implemented. So that shows you we are at all-time high funding. It adjusts for inflation. So we, we're way up there as far as what the voters have said we can do. I think it's possible. I think we can do it. But we need to make sure all of our members are completely on board and they feel like we're getting the best bang for our buck. Is it something you could get a vote on with two-thirds majority to wipe it out? Or is it something that's going to come up every time this happens in perpetuity? Uh, okay. Okay, so the, again, so education on this, it's, an, it's a constitutional issue. So the only way it could be changed is it would have to go to the voters and be changed. Okay. So we, the, the, the Constitution, but the Constitution states we can lift it each year with a two-thirds vote. And we've done it. We've done it a few times already because Republicans have voted for this money. This cap has hit, been hit. Because vote because Republicans have voted to increase K twelve funding. Uh, Senate President Warren Peterson joining us. So let's talk about school choice because the governor has stated that she believes that the way it stands right now with the uh, with the education sp- savings accounts that um, it is going to ruin public education and she wants to try to get rid of what was instituted. Is that safe or is this something that may go away? It, well, it's that's a complete and total scare. I mean, for us to say we're not going to educate our kids, you can't both say we're going to we're not we're not funding education, and I'm going to defund education. I mean, do you see the the the, the lunacy there? So the reality is, we have lots of school choice programs. One that has become very popular is the uh, ESA. It's very small. It's never going to be. It's not this huge threat to public education. And guess what? It's no different than people choosing a different school. It's not robbing money from people. If my child goes to Mountain View to Gilbert High School, you don't have the education community screaming that we're stealing funds from Mountain View. And it's really the same thing. A kid might go from Mountain View and and the family says, you know what, we're going to do ESAs. And I've seen families like this. I literally know families where one student has an ESA, one student is going to a charter school, and one student is going to a district school. All three of these education models serve a purpose. None of them are going anywhere, including ESA. And I'll tell you what, it's it would be a huge debacle and mistake for her 
to eliminate the ESA program because you have a ton of minorities and you have a ton of low-income people. You have a lot of her base that's, that, that, that benefit very much uh, from the ESA and from our base. I mean, from all of our base. This is a very good program. And so for her to say that, it just it's not logical. And, so, um, and it's not going to happen. I mean, you need the legislature to make it happen. There's this misnomer out there. People like to say there's three co-equal branches of government. Uh, that's actually not true. The most powerful branch of government is the legislative branch. And so, but the, but the problem, of course, is always unity. That's always the problem. And the founders were wise. I mean, the founders were wise. If you're going to take the most powerful branch, we should diffuse that power amongst a lot of people, force them to get a consensus, make those people closest to the people. I mean, this was the brilliance of our founders is incredible. It was wise. But yeah, we are the most powerful branch of government. And I can tell you um, that this isn't going to, you know, go away without without us allowing that to happen. I certainly appreciate the time, and I, I sincerely hope you'll come back and kind of update us as the session goes on, because it's obviously a different direction with the Democrat governor now. But I, so I'd like to hear about progress, and I would like to hear about what's coming up next. Love to, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. That is the Senate president joining us for a few moments. Coming up coming up in just a few moments, uh, we're going to talk about intelligence. It did intel about the Hunter Biden laptop. We'll talk about that coming up here in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News. 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here and appreciate the Senate president joining us for a couple of segments. Very informative time, I think, as we move in a different direction with a new governor. It's going to be a tough negotiation, but you saw some of the plans and um, pretty well thought out. Whether you agree or disagree with the Senate president, these are pretty well thought out ideas and plans that they have moving forward. We'll see what we end up with here in the state. Um, Just wanted to go and talk just a little bit about the – the uh, story about Hunter Biden's laptop and some things that are going on. Again, uh, this is something that I think all of us should be concerned about if it's true. Uh, an ex-Intel official who signed Hunter Biden's laptop letter admits significant portions of the emails had to be real. Was was there a weaponization of, of a government entity? Were there people in the FBI that were being sent by the administration to talk to social media organizations and convince them not to go with things, whether it was about vaccines or whether it was about the Hunter Biden laptop story being Russian misinformation. Um, the concern for me is about the First Amendment. This isn't about Joe Biden. This isn't about his son, Hunter Biden. This is about the First Amendment. And this is about protections that are afforded to the media. I think that they are in place. They're necessary. I think they should always be there. I think the press should be free of any kind of government punishment because they dare question or criticize their government. I think it's an important part of who we are. But when you have people that are either either being intimidated or by choosing sides, are they doing a disservice to the American people? But it also doesn't... It doesn't diminish our responsibility as citizens to seek the truth. We all want to hear the things that tickle our ears. We all want to hear what we want to hear. We want to be validated for what we feel is real. We want to be validated for what we feel is right. But are we willing to seek out and make sure that what's happening is the truth? Are we willing to say when our side of the aisle is being dishonest or or shading the truth, are we willing to say that? Because just because you're wrong about one thing doesn't mean your entire premise 
premise is wrong. Um, but in this case, what gets me about this more than anything is so many people. Now, I use social media differently because I'm older. I'm 55 years old. I love social media. I love Twitter, but it's not a real place. I don't look at it for accuracy in news. I may look for trends. I look on Twitter to find out what people are talking about. But I don't consider them, and this isn't an insult, but I don't consider them a news source. I will find things and I will go out and seek things in other places to make sure I have a well-rounded opinion. Um, the same thing with Facebook. I've never used Facebook for news. Never. Not Snapchat. I don't even use Snapchat. But for younger people, that is a news source to them. And what they see or what they read or what they watch on some of these social media platforms is in their mind the truth. There is a responsibility in all of us. I don't care how young you are. You are a critical thinker. When you see something, you can't believe it out of hand. That all at the same time, if you don't like it, you can't just discount it out of hand either. And these kinds of things bother me now because it's very powerful people, whether it's former President Trump and his children or it's the current President Biden and his children. If it seems like there's two sets of rules and I, I, let's be honest, um, the, the fact that the son of the president with some of the things that have been told are on that laptop would have changed. The outcome of this election if it showed the president's involvement. Most voters have already said that. We all should be concerned about that. We all should have a concern. These documents and what's going on with the president's and the and the classified documents in his garage, his response, as cavalier as his response was. And in addition to that, the fact that this goes all the way back to before the election in early November and no one found out about it publicly until January. These are issues that all of us should be concerned about because the American people have a right to know all of these things, all of these things. Um, so uh, I want you to hear very quickly. We have a couple of moments left. An ABC News report talking about the tipping point of the Biden documents. A White House lawyer confirming over the weekend that five more pages of classified documents were found at Biden's Delaware home last Thursday. Classified material was first found in November in Biden's former private office in Washington. But sources say it was the discovery in December of documents in the garage of his Wilmington home that was the tipping point, prompting the attorney general to appoint a special counsel to investigate. You know, uh, the Republicans said we want to see the visitor's log from his Delaware home. Now they'll find out there is no visitor's log from the home. You know, again, I'm not I'm not someone that really likes gotcha politics that just because I disagree with you and you listen to the show for 10 minutes, you'll find out that there are almost all of the policies of this White House I disagree with. I don't agree with this president politically, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily want to engage in gotcha politics all the time. I don't want to call him evil. I just call him wrong. I think he's wrong. But in this case, after everything that's gone on in this country and what's happened with the FBI raiding the home of a former president and then this president saying, I can't understand how anything, how irresponsible, how, you know, what kind of national security was compromised here. And and um, and then we find out there's a box of documents next to his Corvette in his garage. And he goes on camera and he says to the entire country and to the entire world, oh, by the way, my garage was locked. There, there is a level there where the American people have, you know, a reason to be concerned and and to say, listen, wait a minute. If you're going to go after one president, if you're going to say that the former president needs to go to jail and there needs to be prosecution and there needs to be investigation, he is. Be, then why wouldn't it be here in multiple locations where this president had classified documents in unsecured locations? Why would this not be similar, at least in that regard? There are differences, and people want to talk 
talk about the differences, but let's be honest. The difference is one's a Republican and one's a Democrat, and we've chosen sides. Republicans are going to look at Joe Biden as inept and 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 just ridiculous in what these excuses are, and the Democrats are going to look at President Trump as evil and wrong and should go to jail. Those are the, that's a major difference. But in the end, if either one or both of them did something wrong, there should be accountability, and let's fix the system. I don't think any. I don't think that's irresponsible, and I certainly don't think that's irrational for anybody to think. Coming up just after ten o'clock, Arizona honors Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We'll talk about Arizona's record as one story talks about how long it took them to honor him. We'll get to that in just a moment. 